Church, I'm going to invite you as we continue to worship to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, uh, specifically Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. This morning, Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment. I welcome all of our guests that are here with us today. We have our Together for Life uh, in-laws session today, so we know we have some father-in-laws to be and mother-in-laws to be, or currently father-in-laws and mother-in-laws. We welcome you to Dawson. We're so thankful that uh, you and your family have been a part of this uh, Together for Life. One of the, one of the greatest uh, ministries of this church, uh, just the fruit of that ministry over the course of decades is just uh, outstanding. And so I can look around even in the sanctuary and there are many of you that came to Dawson and you came as an engaged couple and you went through Together for Life and God utilized that through some wonderful men and women who volunteer in that area. And so welcome to Dawson. We're walking through the Ten Commandments. Last spring, we went through Exodus 1 through 18. We got to Mount Sinai this spring, and we are dwelling there, walking through the Ten Commandments. We come now to the Ninth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. In the fall of 19. 89, Princeton University enrolled a freshman student who was unique in every way. His name was Alexis Santana, and he had this background, this backdrop of a story that was just astounding to the admissions committee that admitted him. He, in his own words, grew up largely outdoors in Utah, herding cattle and raising sheep, reading philosophy in his free time, this ultra-distance runner on the Mojave Desert. He comes onto campus his freshman year, and guess what? He is he's sort of a low-key superstar in some respects in that Princeton environment. He had an unbelievable story. It was so unbelievable that people began to look into it the longer he hung around to find out that it was absolutely false. He, he had fabricated the whole backstory. It was a tremendous sort of black eye to the whole process of how all of those lies and all of that deceit could have seeped in through the admissions process. And he was immediately kicked out of the school. He was a con man. His name was James Hogue. He was 31 years old, and he had done time for possession of stolen goods and bike parts. And here he had given this whole backstory. Now, how can people... Uh, believe something so outlandish. Well, deceit is something that we're all prone to believe. And we can go back in history and see from Benedict Arnold all the way even more recently to Bernie Madoff that that deceit is is something that is around us and we are prone to fall into. I mean, there there are just no shortage of examples of high-profile cases of utter deception and utter deceit. But this is the thing. You you do not have to look back in history to figure this out. You don't even have to look around you in your own life to figure this out. All you need is a mirror to look into to see deceit staring you in the face. We are all well acquainted with deceit. We're all well acquainted, even in our own life, to be prone to the pull of lies and deceit. And God loves you this much. God loves us this much to know that the trail of difficulty that lingers behind lies and deceit and deceptions. He knows the the webs 
of deception and lies that pull us in and they capture our families and our workplaces and our churches. And he knows us enough to to say, hey, there's a line that you should not cross. And here we have in the ninth commandment, the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Most of us, when we're reciting the Ten Commandments, we come to the Ninth Commandment and we paraphrase it and we sort of misremember it. And the Ninth Commandment becomes not, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, but what? Thou shalt not lie. And that paraphrase is true in essence, but before we get to the essence of the Ninth Commandment, we need to get to the specificity of the Ninth Commandment to understand exactly what God was talking about when he says, you shall not bear false witness, then specifically against your neighbor. So this isn't just lying in general. There, there is a, a specification that most Old Testament scholars would say is that this phrase bearing false witness is connected as a, a legal term. That this is getting us to a judicial setting here. It's a commandment for a court where there are accusations that are formally brought and there are witnesses that are called. We find our very basis in the swearing in of witnesses who solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, in Exodus 20 verse 16. God specifically condemns in the ninth commandment a lying witness Someone who falsely testifies against someone. Now, in the 21st century, we could see the implications of this. But if you back up to that ancient Near Eastern world, you need to understand outside of Israel why this was so difficult and why this was so important. In the ancient Near Eastern world, you need to understand that if somebody was charged with a crime, there was little to no protection of them. They were presumed guilty until proven innocent. There are a few standards of the presentation of evidence. There were some times where the accused would not even have the opportunity to mount a defense. Ancient courts could convict someone without or actually on the word of just one single witness. And so if there's a person that has a vendetta against you, if somebody wants to uh, settle a score with you, I mean, you're, you're in a difficult spot, right? Especially if that person is bearing false witness, especially if that person is lying against you. And if you could accelerate this, many of the crimes in that context would have been capital offenses. So someone's life held or hung in the balance of the accusations of this one person here. It is one person's word against another person's word. So to bear false witness could be a death sentence. Now the people of God, Israel, they experience this in a very different way. This unlocks a lot of what you read about in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, even in Deuteronomy. So much of the law is actually uh, judicial in nature. It's actually God saying, what do you do when there are crimes that are committed? How, How do you protect the innocent? How is justice brought about as you, the Israelites, are coming out of Egypt and you're wandering in the wilderness and you're going to the promised land and you read the Bible and you begin to discover that in contrast to that ancient Near Eastern world here, the people of God had a different standard of justice. 
And it was a standard of justice that God gives his people. So if a member of the people of God is on trial, they appear before a jury of elders. There has to be more than one witness in opposition to what's around them. There has to be more than one witness. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness should not suffice. A single witness should not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If you're in Deuteronomy chapter 19, if you just walk down two more verses, you're going to get to verse 18 and verse 19, and there's actually protection If the accused has the accuser who has mounted this lie and that lie comes to light, there's actually punishment for the lying accuser. So there's safeguards to protect the innocent from injustice. Why? Because our God is a God of truth. Our God is a God of justice. So much of the prophets speak to the very character and the heart of a God who is in his essence a God who fights for the oppressed, who stands with the falsely accused, those that are marginalized and their voices are minimized here. You hear Zechariah chapter 8 verse 16, you see it on the screen. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Uh, These principles They're still relevant in the 21st century, especially for our judicial system. If there is not the pursuit of truth, there will not be the attainment of justice. The backbone of a pursuit of justice in any society will be a legal system that seeks and prioritizes truthful testimony that can lead then to a just defense. If the pursuit of truth in any society at any time is sidelined and it's replaced by the pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, or if intimidation gains a stronghold, then justice will be elusive then and justice will be elusive now and justice will be elusive in the future. So this commandment, it speaks really specifically to a judicial system. It speaks very specifically to the importance of honesty and truthfulness for judges and accusers and witnesses and juries and attorneys and down the road. You can get this. Now, the problem then is some of us will hear this and hear the specificity of this and say, hey, if my life is not the plot line of a John Grisham novel, then the ninth commandment doesn't have anything for me. We just sort of back away from it. But again, if, you, if you're walking with us, we're now non-commandments in to this series. Hopefully by now, there's sort of some instinctual habits of the reading of these commandments that are helping you. Each of these commandments has specificity. But if we back away and out of the commandments, what we don't notice is, is like, well, take for instance the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. And of course, that gives us this standard of not taking an innocent person's life. But also, as we think about the sixth commandment, the application of that then goes to the heart of anger, malice, and rage. And we're called not just to not do these things, get as close as we can without stepping over, but we're then positively called to live lives of peacefulness, to pursue love, Think about the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Well, that commandment also speaks what? To lust. And it also then speaks to the pursuit of purity and the pursuit of a commitment and a, and a, a, a husband and a wife relationship here. So, so it is with the ninth commandment. As we follow through the ninth commandment, you need to understand here that as a follower of Christ, the ninth commandment is calling you to pursue truth, to live honest lives. So you can break the ninth commandment without ever seeing the inside of a courtroom. I mean, you can break the ninth commandment and never leave your pew. You can break the ninth commandment and do it all as well at home. What do I mean by that? Well, the ninth commandment, it reminds us of the pull of deceit. This is just something that we just need to be, what, honest about. That all of us here in ways, some very familiar and some just becoming familiar, our understanding of this, this current of deceit that it is easy for us to be called up in in this world. Time Magazine, a few years back, had a cover story that was entitled, We Are All Liars, Science Proves It. And in that cover story, they, they talked about a survey that was done in Great Britain. They just asked the average number of lies that an average Great Britain citizen would give in a given day. And, and the way they tallied it was is that every British male in a given day would utter six lies. And every British female would utter three lies in a given day. One of the things that it did is it chronicled some of the most familiar phrases of deceit that come off of our tongues. I wonder if any of them are familiar to you. Here's some of the more familiar ones. I was stuck in traffic. My phone died. I don't think I got that email. I assure you, it was on sale. You haven't changed a bit. I'll try to make it. Finally, I promise you, I would never lie to you. Hey, no, nobody here needs to go digging in the archives of Time Magazine to know that we are prone to deceit that we feel the pull of dishonesty. 2,000 years before any types of surveys are done, the half-brother of Jesus would utter these words that still remain true for your life and my life. The tongue, James chapter 3, verse 6, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow! The words that come out of our mouth are set on fire by hell itself. That the deceit and the dishonesty that is uttered with our words is words that in, in many ways come with the flaming fire of hell upon them. And you know this and I know this. We, we have so many options to be deceitful and untruthful. I mean, you've got a myriad of, of multiple choice options before you every day that you walk on this earth. You can say too little and be dishonest. Walking through life at work and at home with half-truths, 
pulling back pertinent information for your own purposes and own manipulation. Or on the flip side, you can say way too much and be deceitful. It's flattery. Almost the worst of deceit. To be able to say so much to listening ears and itching ears, to be able to gain their trust or to be able to gain their allegiance. Every day, you and I can mislead. Every day, you and I can misquote. Every day, you and I can misinterpret what a person says. Every day, you have the opportunity to twist people's words. Every day, you have the opportunity to put words into other people's mouths. Every day, you can do this against your neighbor, the neighbor that you live with and those that live around you, the neighbors that you work for and that that you work with, the neighbors that you love deeply and the neighbors that you don't even know. You can find yourself in a given day lying about things that don't even matter. I, I just... It has no stakes. You're not even involved in it. But somehow what comes out of your mouth is just frankly not the truth. And on the flip side, you can get backed into a corner. And it feels like it really matters. And you can jab your way out of the corner with deceit after deceit with after deceit. Paul, Paul would say it this way. We've got to put this to death. As followers of Christ, we have to crucify this. And notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 and following here, that Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip, conceit and disorder. Notice when he talks about the sins of the flesh that he might find among the Corinthian believers, how much so many of them are the sins of the mouth. The sins of the tongue, especially specific to the ninth commandment. Notice that anger and slander and gossip all intersect the ninth commandment. We can break the ninth commandment by slandering a person. What is that? I mean, it's a lie that that pokes a hole into someone's character, trying to deflate them down to make sure that no one thinks better of them or even accurately about them. We can slander a person at work. We can slander a person at home. We can slander a person that we know well and we don't know well. Gossip is here. Gossip is just casually throwing out secondhand information that may or may not be true, but you just stoke the flame. Stoke the flame of interest. Pull people into the orbit of the flame that oftentimes when it goes unbridled and, it, and it's not drowned out by, by the, the water of truth, it, it's just a little brush fire that turns into this huge forest fire in, in your family, in your workplace, gossip. It's from the very pit of hell itself. And you know that and I know that. We know that. Conceit. Again, Paul, in this litany of words here, is saying, it's just saying too much about ourselves. It's lying on the flip side here. We end up lying by just taking too much credit here. Now, what do all of these things have in common? They break the ninth commandment in varying ways, but this is the truth. They all use speech to support, instead of uh, using speech to support and build others up, we're doing what? We're using our words to tear them down. And this is the pull of deceit. This is the current that we can get called up in 
all of us. So notice the followers of Jesus, we're called to not be pulled into the current of deceit, but to pursue truth. In 2002, Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, he wrote an article in Christianity Today that was entitled, A Post-Truth World. In 2002, Colson is writing an article entitled, A Post-Truth World. 20 years ago, Colson sees the erosion of truth in the public arena. I remind you, this is 20 years ago, so he did not know Twitter, he did not know Facebook, he did not know the phrases of fake news or alternative facts, but he did know the the pull of people saying, well, that's true for me, might not be true for you. He, he didn't know what he saw in that moment, which was prophetic, that our culture then and certainly now has lost confidence in so much of what we see, hear, and read. Our, our culture is, is bathing in this world of lies and dishonesty. And as Christians, what a glorious opportunity we have. As Christians, what a such a time as this moment to be alive. Because you and I have an opportunity to be salt and light. And one of the ways that you and I will be salt and light in a world that is swimming in dishonesty, in a world that is skeptical and distrustful and dishonest, is that you are called, I, we are called to be an oasis of truth, an oasis of honesty in a desert of lies and rumors and innuendos. Christian, you are created in the Imago Dei. You're created in the image of God, the image of the truth-telling God who speaks and gives us the word of truth. You have been saved and you're being conformed into the Son of God. Do you remember? The Son of God is the way, the truth, and the life. He comes, John chapter 1, full of grace and what? Truth. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God, 1 John chapter 4, is the Spirit of of truth. So as followers of Christ, you are called, we are called to live a life of of holy difference to the world. Holy countercultural. Where dishonesty so often reigns, we are called to be truth tellers. We are called to say what we mean and mean what we say. We are called to say what we mean and mean what we say. One of the most glorious witnesses that you're going to have is that your words actually matter and that you strive to stand by your word and to live by your word. And let me just let you in on a secret. We all fail miserably in upholding this standard, don't we? I mean, we all fail, sometimes unintentionally and sometimes very intentionally. We don't uphold the standard. And so once again, we're reminded of why we need a Savior. Our sinfulness reminds us that we do not perfectly keep the standard of truth in our interpersonal dealings, at work, at home, anywhere. We fall short of this, and grace and truth has died for us as liars and those who are dishonest. And the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sin, all of our dishonesty. 
But as we gaze upon the cross, forgiven by him, he propels us through his grace and the spirit of God to live lives that are different. And one way that we live that life is salt and light in our schools, in our workplaces, and at home is to be those who pursue truth. Now, some of you are listening to this and say, amen. Exactly. I'm going to tell it like it is. We need more people to tell it like it is. And so we take this kind of wording here and we use it as a blanket permission to be harsh, rude, and unloving. We tell it like it is. And we just need to be grounded by Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We speak the truth in... We speak the truth in... We speak the truth in... Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to popular, I would say, Christian sentiment in some sectors, judgmentalism, harshness, rudeness, these are not fruits of the Spirit, my friends. It's just not. We're called to be kind, we're called to be loving, we're called to be patient. As truth tellers, even with people that do not see eye to eye with us, even with people who would call us enemies, even with people that misunderstand us, and even with people that misrepresent us, we are called to speak the truth in love. Now, some people are listening to this sermon and they're like, what about? What about, what about, what about? These kinds of sermons, they oftentimes lead to hypothetical questions, big questions, important questions. Well, preacher, I heard you, but what about? Is there ever a time where it's okay to lie? What about war? What about persecution? What about these huge moments? Is it okay to lie? You go back to St. Augustine, 5th century bishop of uh, North Africa there in Hippo, and he said, he said that there's never a time where it would ever be appropriate to, to be deceitful, to ever lie. And many theologians over the course of 1,500 years have followed suit with that. Now, one of the things about this is, is when you walk through the Bible, the whatabouts come forth from the Bible. So you open up the book of Exodus and you get to Exodus chapter 2 and then you're introduced to these maidservants, Shipra and Pua, who are employed by Pharaoh and they're given a commandment. Guess what? You need to kill all of the baby children that are born by Israelite mothers. And what do they do? They practice deceit. They lie to be able to save the innocent lives. You flip over. Walking through the Old Testament, you get to Joshua chapter 2 and you meet Rahab. And there Rahab is deceiving Canaanites who uh, ultimately deceives them to do what? To save Joshua's spies. You get to Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through 8. And there's concealment from military strategy. And the Bible doesn't have these sort of parenthetical references. Oh yeah, all by the way, God condemns this. No, they're given to us as the word of the Lord and as a description of what God is blessing in this moment here. But each of these, I remind you, each of these, I remind you, are deceit to prevent evil men from committing more consequential sins of murder and genocide. Each of these are exceptional cases of wartime to protect innocent life. Unless we think this is just a little aside that's more appropriate for a ethics class in seminary, 
I, I do remind you that there are brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now who this is actually a live factor for. And so it's just a reminder that we should be on our knees in prayer. We should be in a spirit of solidarity with those that are defending home, those that have had their homes blown away, those who are fleeing, those who are in the face of real hellish enemies. This needs to be a reminder to us of how we pray for those that even right, right now, this isn't hypothetical. But guess what? Even as we're conscientious and uh, reminded of the difficulty that is occurring and these extreme examples, most of your life and most of my life, they're not lived in these exceptional circumstances. And the word of the Lord to us is to speak the truth. The word of the Lord to us is to pursue honesty. When I was five, six, seven, I don't know if it was in kindergarten, I don't know when it was, but someone, maybe it was my mom, maybe it was his teacher, they gave me that cliche that's been passed down from one generation to the next. And that cliche is simply honesty is the best policy. And that's not just a way to get around in life, to make friends and influence people. No, it's just great wisdom because we're witnesses to people through our honesty. We are a, we are a walking testimony of the trustworthiness of God. And especially to people who, who they don't quite know what to make of the Christian story. They're very skeptical of it. And so we're walking advertisements. We're walking advertisements of what the, a life in communion with God is supposed to be like. And so if we consistently are living in the drudges of dishonesty, if we're consistently swept up in the current of lies, this is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so our honesty and our deceit, it matters not, not just for us personally, but as a witness to a lost and unbelieving world. So practically, today and tomorrow and this week, you will have the opportunity to live into the ninth commandment by doing some really practical things. You will be a witness for the Lord, salt in life, if you follow through with what you say you are going to do. This is good Christian work. Showing up where you say you're going to show up doing what you say you're going to do. This is a witness unto the Lord. You live into the ninth commandment when your speech is measured and your speech is careful. And you don't just throw out words that you never intend to actually mean, but you think carefully about what you say. One way that we live into the ninth commandment is, is that sometimes deceit can be in our mind when we think the worst about people. And we constantly are suspicious of their motives. We're always thinking that they're trying to undermine us as followers of Christ, as best that we can in appropriate settings, of course with wisdom, of course with prudence, but we want to be generous in hearing what other people say and what other people do. We want to have a spirit of generosity about us. 
that is not constantly trying to poke holes in other people that are around us to find the worst motivations and the worst background of anything and everything that could be happening. Of course, there are exceptions to that, and life is lived in that. Of course, that's true. We need to defend people when they're unfairly gossiped about and slandered. Again, the passage of Scripture is we speak the truth in love. We're not holier than thou in those kinds of settings. We know we're prone to that ourselves, but we can't sit back in our silence and allow the fire of of rumors and the fire of slander and the fire of gossip to just spread. Our silence is kindling that we're putting on the fire. We douse it with the water of truth spoken in love. This also means that we have to have sometimes difficult conversations And those difficult conversations sometimes are opposition to sin and the confrontation of sin. But always, we speak the truth in love. 